Hi, I'm Kelly Bodden, and I'm here with the one and only lovely and talented Frank Bender, who just blew my mind with some with his uh, talk about ELL evaluation. And um, thank you, Frank, for doing that. Oh, no problem. And um, as we were talking a little bit before we got started about... I have a placement right now that has a really wide variety of languages and I'm doing all the evaluations. And so this is a great topic for me at this moment in my career. So I'm especially appreciative. Um, So one thing that really struck me throughout what you were talking about is how the... (laughs) This process is really, truly what we should be doing for every kid, right? Yeah, that You know, it's funny. When I've done this workshop many times across the country, I try to express that. And I think when people have that aha moment, I think that's when I know I've done my job. Because really, we should be doing this in my mind. This is the process approach that would work for any student. Right, right, exactly. And this is why I think people sometimes when they struggle with this concept of evaluating culturally and linguistically diverse students, I have found that what paralyzes the process and people are, are three things. Typically it's usually there's fear and the fear Mm -hmm. is based upon, I'm just scared to do the wrong thing. Right. Right. And it's a fear of like, okay, again, I said in my discussion, is this different from what I typically do? And what I always try to convey to people is like, if we think of it more conceptually, it shouldn't be any different. What's different might be a couple of pieces of data that we consider and our analysis of how we filter our data through the lens of cultural and linguistic factors. Right, right. So, And I think, I mean, you know, you could easily apply that any of that really to, to kiddos from extreme poverty, let's say, you know, who they're in some ways they're, uh, we know from all the research, they're linguistically deprived in terms of their vocabulary exposure and things like that. And so, um, you know, you could really apply it to any given population. And there's just the big picture here is that kids are more than, I mean, they're more than a number, right? Well, you know? well, exactly. And this, you know, it's interesting you bring up the students from poverty because when we talk about dynamic assessment, and I'm a big proponent of dynamic assessment principles and the utilization of that approach to identify how a student learns, retains, and transfers information. So if we think about a student from poverty and how it's analogous to maybe working with our ELL population, what I'm trying to get at in my evaluation using this practice is if the child who either comes from a language deprived environment or they are somebody who's just learning the language based skills of English. Sure. What happens when I teach them the skill set that they are lacking in? Right. Right. And then just like I would hope to see in my intervention with children that are already on my caseload, if I see a child who responds to that instruction very efficiently, meaning they retain that information Mm -hmm. pretty quickly, they're able to build upon that skill set and then transfer it to the next session, then those are the 
attributes of what I refer to as kind of that cognitive wiring that is in place that would be more reflective of a student that is typical versus atypical. Right, right. And you let, as you said, you know, I love that, that you, gosh, you get those kiddos in your room and boy, after three sessions, you're like, holy smokes, you have disordered language. Oh, oh. my word. You can't learn. You can't retain. Exactly. Oh boy. And then also, unfortunately, what happens, you also get those students sitting across from you and you sit down and you teach them whatever you teach them, prepositions, and they've got it in one session. They've and you're like, one session. They've super, got it. super, we made you special ed eligible and actually you just needed a little direct instruction. And, and this is why I always go back to, you know, I think that the standardized, if we think about standardized measures, which have their place, but they are static versions of what the child can do in that moment in time. And if the child's never been exposed to those concepts, and especially in a language other than their first language, right. then it's not a true, it's not truly representative of what the child's knowledge or ability to learn is. Right, right, exactly. And, and the, um, it, you know, standardized tests, they are, well, they're beaten into us. <laughs> In grad school, I mean, just, and I mean, I've been out of grad school for a while, so maybe things are a little bit different now, but it's certainly what we're taught to hang our hat, our hat on. And that comes from, from grad school and it comes from top-down administration and, you know, it comes from lawsuits and right Congress and whatever, but, um, and, and also there's, so I think there's this comfort there that, there's a number and like I know I can say like, look, this is the number. Right. And one of the reasons I think that this kind of assessment that you're talking about, it's a little unnerving because it's squishy and you it's, can't it's squishy and it's globby and you can't quite you know, there's no number you can't say. But really looking at that number, you can't actually say. That, well, it, it, well, and I always go back to that because. If I've given a standardized norm reference test for an ELL student, and so let's say it's a Vietnamese student, and uh, they've been referred, and they've been here for two years, and in an English-speaking school setting. So let's say they were in kindergarten, they came in, now it's, it's kindergarten, first grade, early second grade, and I give them the, uh, let's say I give them the, um, the told, or the castle, or the self, and they... They score low. Let's say they score 75 composite. I mean, so is that really telling me anything other than they just they just don't speak English very well? Right, right. I mean, that's really all it's telling me. Right. And when we think about a norm reference test is basically looking at, you know, the 10,000 people that they designed it on and whether the child is, you know, performing worse than, you know, the mean of 68% of the population. And that's all it's supposed to really tell us. And I always go back to my graduate school experience with Dr. Rhea Paul. And it's like, you know, the standardized test is just telling you where the student performs compared to the normal distribution of the population. Right. It's not supposed to tell us that the child has a disability or disorder. But because I think policy issues, like you said, lawsuits, uh, the districts that are looking for more efficient ways to uh, identify uh, a student and a number seems to be pretty clear and concrete. People gravitate to that. This process is more squishy. But I think what people would find if they conducted this process is when you triangulate your data, 
and you have information from a good, solid parent interview. And I tell you, most ELL evaluations, the part where most people drop the ball is a good, solid developmental history. Right, right. And if we went back to putting more time into that, and the research supports this, that you would find that the descriptions from the parent, if the child was developing in a slower, atypical way, in terms of their primary language, you would also see those other attributes if the child really was delayed or disordered in other uh, in, in those other platforms or constructs that I mentioned. You would see it unfold in the second language acquisition. You would see it unfold in response to intervention. Right. And then you would most likely, if we were to use those standardized measures and probably use Dr. Ortiz's cultural language interpretive matrix, you would also see that pattern unfold as well. So when we triangulate all of that information, that's what we're really trying to do is then say, look, I've looked at all the data. Is there a preponderance of evidence, not a number, but a preponderance of evidence that suggests that this child is not performing in a typical manner? And have I addressed those key components? Is it due to second language acquisition? No because I've looked at that. Right. Is, is it due to the cultural variables of culturation? No, I've looked at that. And if I can say I've looked at those two pieces of information and I cannot attribute it to the delays that this child is experiencing, and I've triangulated all those factors, then I should be able to say, yes, there isn't a number, but this child represents characteristics of a communication disorder based upon these facts or these factors. And if I go into a due process hearing and the hearing officer asks me, Mr. Bender, what did you do to determine that this child had a communication disorder? And if I walk in and say, well, Your Honor, uh, this is a Somali student, so I gave the self five yeah. and scored a 65, and so uh, we made him eligible. Right. And the hearing officer is going to ask what the federal law asks us to do. Uh, did you look at other factors? And if I don't say yes, or if I didn't consider those, I'm going to get in trouble. But if I said, yes, I did look at all those factors, and we didn't come up with a number, but we came up with like this air pattern that reflected atypical development, I'm going to walk out of there fine. Sure, exactly. And, and, I, and I'm going to sleep well at night. Right, right. And you're going to know, I, I think that, um, you know, with gigantic caseloads and um, this, I mean, as you know, and I know, the pressures on the school SLP are just, the demands are uh, completely unrealistic and insane when you really want to do what's best for kids. Right. And and this sort of thing. But I love, that's where I love where you pointed out that, like, how much time are you putting into giving the, giving the self? Well, and that's the part. People say, I don't have time to do this. Right, right. Now, I can give... I can do a full-blown um, evaluation for an ELL student in about the same amount of time as I can for an English-based student. Yeah, I'm doing one right now for a Russian-speaking student, and she, um, you know, we're get, the district wants some standardized tests, and so we're giving, I'm giving, you know, a couple of those, um, and, but, and at the same time doing dynamic assessment. And so I'm right. just tacking that extra five minutes of the teaching right. into when the, she's in there already. And it's like sort of rapport building and we're chit chatting and doing that piece. I it's, it's adding nominal, a nominal amount oh, rich of time. Data. 
Rich, yeah. I would say, like, explain, I mean, going to what you just described, where the district requires a standardized test, I then start asking questions like, okay, do I have to give this? Because I, I love that too. Yeah, that really made me think. And I really, I don't know the answer to that. And I, well, I, what we have to get, this is a district process that has to be addressed higher up than most line level staff members. But if we think about this as a process approach that a district can then embrace, it, the question should be, what data do we need? Not that Kelly or Frank has to give the standardized test, but if we require a standardized measure, because the state of Oregon does require a standardized measure for communication disorder. Now, the question then becomes, in terms of meeting the requirements of the law, is does that the issue shouldn't be me giving the test. It should be me doing the analysis of the test in terms of language-based issues. So if I can take a standardized measure that was already completed on this student in terms of, let's say it was a language proficiency test like the woodcock Munoz, right, right. which has a language component to it. And this goes beyond this discussion, but I have the knowledge and the ability to interpret the Woodcock Munoz in accordance to second language acquisition. In fact, the Woodcock Munoz and the Woodcock Johnson battery tests were developed to incorporate the five stages of second language acquisition. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. trick is that you have to know what that looks like and how to interpret that. Right, right. right. But the point is, is that I, since I know how to do that, I can take that information that's a standardized test, I can interpret that, and I can fold that into my report and my analysis. So then I can take, so the, really the trick is knowing how to map my resources. Right. Like if I know what data is out there and I can pull it, I can do my analysis, but I don't have to give the test. My job should be in the analytical piece of de determining whether a child has some type of language disability. It's not me giving the PPVT. I mean, I'm not. I don't want to upset people, but if you look, at, <laughs> if you look at the PPVT um, examiner's manual, more than the speech pathologist can administer that tool. Right. Right. So right. Right. It's not necessarily the critical piece. Isn't me giving the test? The critical piece is me interpreting it through the lens of communication issues. Right. And I think when you're and talking about the back end stuff, when you're writing your report, I mean, if you are hopefully hopefully people are noting that this is an english language learner and yes and all of that in their report and so you're already going to be talking about that stuff i mean although I, I i i do say hopefully you are and uh, many reports come across my desk that don't mention that which is unfortunate well it should not only mention that but this is the part where i go back into i didn't I wasn't able to go into a great amount of detail, but I mean, this is where I'm noting if I have to report a standardized test score because the district is requiring me to, I not only, I put right in there, this is not. Oh, I do too. A, yeah. I, I put an I, asterisk, like, yes, oh, you exactly. know, in my little chart, because what, I mean, I get a report and what do I do? I flip, I flip, 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 flip. What are the numbers? Okay. And then maybe I read the narrative. Maybe I don't, right. but uh, so in my little chart, I put asterisks by every single score, and then oh, yeah. I have my whole explanation, too, because Good. I don't want any, you know, I, it's really important that we're not hanging our, I mean, is it, yeah. I think it's, just a, it's a professional approach that we have to note that, look, we know that, and we need to reflect that these scores for an ELL student are 
bias based upon cultural and linguistic uh, issues. But this is where then I go into, if uh, because I know how to do this, but I then cite, and I'll cite the source, just like APA style, I cite uh, Dr. Sam Ortiz's research, and I then provide an analysis of using the cultural language interpretive matrix. So for example, for his matrix for, let's say, the self uh, five, and uh, he has, uh, using his matrix, I'm able to then identify for every subtest how much my standard scores are being impacted due to uh, language loading and, and uh, or language demand and cultural loading. So then I then put an, uh, a separate analysis saying that even though this child scored a 72, right, mm-hmm. maybe based upon the cultural language interpretive matrix, this child's score based upon the profile that Ortiz uses may only fluctuate by 10 points, let's say. So that would then say that, okay, well, this score is biased by as much as 10 points. So my conceptual mean now goes from 100 standard score to 90. Sure. Okay. So now where does this student fall in terms of his score? He, well, he scored a 72. That is only eight points from this new, no, 22 points, right? No, I'm not nine. good at the maths, Frank. I'm like a speech pathologist. I'm with you. So, so 90, right? <laughs> so then we have 80. There's 10. 10 plus another eight, 18 points. So we have the new conceptual mean is 90 because there's a fluctuation of 10 points. And this child scored a 72. So now I can say in my analysis, this test or subtest is inherently biased. However... When using the Ortiz Cultural Language Interpretive Matrix, APA citation, I, I, didn't, love it. I didn't make this up, this student is performing even more discrepant than we would expect right. on this subtest. So then that gives credence to my analysis saying, look, I, and if I go into a due process hearing, I, have, I know this test is biased. However, I'm using... A, an approach that's in the research that says I'm taking into consideration the amount of bias and variability that is uh, impacting my scores due to language and acculturation. And now I can say whether this student falls within that range. So maybe a 72 isn't that bad. Right, right, right. So now I can say, look, maybe based upon the profile, because Ortiz gives like three profiles, and based upon the profile of the student, uh, it'll tell you how much variability exists within each subtest. So the most extreme case would be a student is what he refers to as, um, uh, well, I can't remember the term that he uses off the top of my head, but it's basically it's most it's a child who, let's say, has very limited exposure to English and their BIC skills, oh, it's called markedly different. So if a child is markedly different, according to Ortiz's profile, um, and it is in the quadrant for most of our tests of the self or the PPVT, a child who's markedly different, their standard score points could be impacted by as much as 30 standard score points. That's nuts. Right. It's crazy, right? That's nuts. So on the surface, most of our test scores would be like, oh my goodness. I mean, they're, they're totally invalid. However, what happens, and I've had this, child was uh, I gave uh, the, the PPV, PPVT was used, and 
It was a markedly different student, which means they had limited big skills. They had limited exposure uh, in terms of the English language uh, continuum, in terms of they've only been in the system for a very short time. So based upon that profile, you could see a range between 20 to 30 standard point score, 30, 20 to 30 standard points variance in terms of the, uh, the scores. Mm -hmm. So that would mean then my conceptual mean could shift from 100 to as far as 70. Right. right? Okay, so now what happens if the, if the child scores a 75? Well, then I would say I, when I'm reporting my scores, well. They're based, rocking it. <laughs> well, or they're within the range of what we would concern. It, it wouldn't be as atypical sure. as, as people would, would think. Right. I'm real careful how I phrase things. You know, I don't say normal. I don't say abnormal. I just talk about typical and atypical. Sure. Right. But, but what happens if the child scored a 50? Now I can say. Sure. Yes, this test is in, uh, it has issues with validity because of the bias of, of language and acculturation. And based upon the, uh, the uh, cultural language interpretive matrix um, outlined by Ortiz, APA citation. APA citation. Right. <laughs> this score can uh, vary as much as 30 standard score points. However, this child scored, you know, a standard score of 50, which is significantly more discrepant right. than, than we would expect in terms of how much bias is uh, associated with this test. Right. I, yeah. And I, I'm going to go look up that tool because I'm going to I'm going to do my APA citation in my report that I'm going to write this week for well, my student. So yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna. That tool and uh, is based upon that book, The Essentials of Cross Battery Assessment, uh -huh. and, it, and it comes with a disc, which is great. Oh, cool! Now you put in the disc, and uh, it's actually just so everybody knows that it's primarily programmed for a PC, and the lame. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> but but if you have a PC uh, uh, access to a PC like in your school, it's it's just more efficient to use sure. because of the way it's programmed. But you can put it in, and it's great for school psychologists in terms of using what they call the patterns of strengths and weaknesses model, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is awesome. But it also has, I'd say, about twenty different speech and language tests that you can pull up. And what it does, it brings up this grid, and you put in your scores, and then it gives you a basically a pattern analysis of which uh, groups of subtests are below where they should be or within the range. And then you can do your specific subtest analysis in terms of where the breakdowns are. That's awesome. And you know, um, our uh, this reminds me, are any of those books that you mentioned resources, do you know if they're available on Amazon or oh, like, yeah, they all are. So what's, what's really cool. Now wait for this. This is awesome. We are going, we can embed all of that into our um, podcast post. Oh. And so people can just go to the post on, on our uh, blog and it'll all be right there and you can order it directly from Amazon, right on our website. Well, then what I will do is provide the direct, titles and links Super. to these Thank you. so people can go and I would I'll put down kind of my top few books that I would recommend. Cool. That that's the first time we're going to get to do that. So like I'm super duper excited. And there's there are a lot of resources out there and um you know the the, the part that makes this whole process it can be if, if you let it it can be overwhelming. Sure. I would say that any time that 
you're going down this path of trying to change your kind of assessment approach or maybe from even a uh, policy and procedure standpoint at a district level is, you know, start off and chunk what you can accomplish. If you try to do the whole thing at once, it'll be overwhelming. Right. And maybe, I mean, it's enough. It's enough if you're if you're not familiar with this at all. I mean, it's enough just to write in your report. This student is an English language learner and this test was standardized on native English speakers. Yeah. Like that's a great place to start. And it's a great place to start. even if you, even if you do that, that can be your baby step for this year. And then, exactly. you know, the next, and certainly, like I said, the placement I'm in right now, holy smokes, it's super duper linguistically diverse. Right. But I have gone, I mean, literally I've gone like, I think the last time I did one of these was a couple years ago, right. you know, so it, depending on where you're at, you're either going to do this all the time or you're like never going to do it. Well, exactly. And I think I was starting down this path earlier talking about, you know, how efficient uh, I can do this in about the same amount of time. But for somebody who's just starting out, it's going to take longer for a couple of reasons. One, you may not have the knowledge of how to do the interpretation at a proficient level yet. And I always look at I always explain this to people in terms of do you remember when you came out of graduate school? Vaguely. It, well, okay. <laughs> do you remember if it did it take you longer to do evaluations and write reports and do your analysis? Oh yeah, right. Than it does today. Totally. Of course because, it does. Right. And this is the same thing, right? Because you now know, in terms of just a standard English evaluation, you know where to find information. You have that ability to do the analysis very efficiently and uh, make those kind of connections. It, when you're, What I'm asking people to do now is think about second language acquisition, which they may not have a great deal of background or knowledge on yet. So then that requires them to do some additional uh, research and get some insight. So that takes longer. But once you do these things and you systematize the process, it will be like anything else. Your proficiency right. level will increase and your time to do this will decrease. Right. And right. it's the same thing like with writing your report, you know, it, when the first time you write a report, you don't know like, how, oh, okay, what? how do I write that up? But I'm not quite sure. And then, well, okay, you do it about 452 times and you have your report template and you pull it up and you grab your standard language out of there. And I think this is sort of the same thing where even right. if your baby step is just that you're going to add that little caveat, you know, type it up, make it look how you want. And then you can cut and paste that into your your other reports. Exactly. I would say that, you know, if people are taking these baby steps. I think, like you mentioned, a, a first step is one, just to, you know, note in your report that. You know, you're working with a a bilingual student and what that looks and identify and writing a report. This is the student's cultural linguistic kind of uh, profile. Now, what would be great then is to provide some additional insight to what that means. You know, what's typical about that or what's right. atypical or right. what's typical. The other piece I think would I would encourage for anybody. And this, like we mentioned earlier, this should be no different from any evaluation but for our ELL students, even more so important, I believe, because we don't have standardized measures, is a strong developmental history. Right. Right. What, what we know about students 
that are bilingual that have communication disorder is that the disorder and disability will exist in both languages. Right. And so talking to mom and mom says, oh, no, uh-uh, he didn't talk till he was three and a half. Well, that, OK, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Right. It's a red flag. I always think in terms of what yeah. I call red flags, like how many red flags have to be present you know, before I'm like, okay, something's going on here. Right, right. Yeah. So there's definitely that developmental history is, is huge. So, um, and this will be my last question because, you know, we, we do have other things to do today, right? Oh, but the, yeah, um, right. I could go on it all day. On I this. know, I know the, um, so you're, you want to do that developmental history, you, but you don't have any, anybody who can talk with mom, um, who speaks that language um you know mom doesn't read english or write english or any of that like how do you do you have any super duper advice for overcoming those sorts of barriers well one thing i would say is that one of the things that does make this process a little bit longer is that more than likely you will need the assistance of an interpreter yes you do now, it is the district's responsibility, and it is a state law in the state of Oregon, that districts are to provide an interpreter for any kind of services related to education for, for parents to have informed consent or to be a part of the educational process. And there is a state statute, I don't have it off the top of my head, but there is a state statute that reflects that. Now, what could happen is the district says, we can't get anybody. Right. Well, that... Uh, this is where you have to determine like how far you want to push, but they are required to provide support or assistance. And technology now allows us to get access to interpretation services um, in a way that we couldn't do five years ago or 10 years ago. Sure, right. Yeah, I didn't so even think about the that. Key, yeah, I mean, you could be using phone conferences, webcasts. There are ways to go about it if a district thinks outside the box. But Let's say a larger district, and for most districts, they may have a lot of EAs that are available for interpretation. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so you want to capitalize on What you want to try to avoid is like having family members or friends in the community Mm -hmm. assist with interpretation to talk with the parents about sensitive information. Right. And and there's a great book, uh, and I'll put this as one of the books that I recommend, uh, by... um, uh, uh, Lily Chang, and I oh, can't think of her name, but it's on uh, working with interpreters. Uh-huh. And it's a great book to have because it really outlines the things that you want to consider. So if you have to do interpretation, you may have to work with an interpreter and uh, to get the information that you need. What's important about working with interpreters, though, with people from different cultural backgrounds is that you really got to think about your questions in terms of what are you trying to really ask? Like sometimes people just use a standard developmental history form and they don't think about the cultural sensitivities. Right. Right. And, and we should think about cultural sensitivities for anybody. Right. Of course. I mean, of course. Do, you know, do I, depending on the situation, do I really have to ask the parent if they, you know, smoke crack? <laughs> I mean, right. right. So you got to be, you got to be thoughtful in terms of the questions that we ask. And with somebody who comes from a different culture, we have to be more aware that sometimes talking about pregnancy yeah, can be I a was sensitive just say issue. That. Mm-hmm. So then how do, we have, how do we address that? Well, if it's a question that you really need answered, you need to work with your interpreter to identify and say, you know, I understand this is a, um, a sensitive topic. However, this is really important for us to know. And, you know, using the interpreter will assist 
you in getting that information because then they have that kind of cultural reciprocity with the parent. Right. And and that's where, I mean, I like to, I try and think of my interpreters as not just linguistic interpreters, but they're really cultural interpreters. And that's yes. like yes. that real, I, re, when you find somebody great, I mean, you can really lean on them for some of that. And, and well, and this is what takes longer because if you're working right. with an interpreter, you have to remember that any meeting you have with an interpreter will probably take twice as long. Oh, at least. So, because you're filtering information through another person and then back through you mm-hmm. or back to you. So, that takes time. But the other part that people typically don't do, and this can be, this can make or break the success of using an interpreter, is what you really need to front load some time in what uh, the book that I'll recommend and, and have uh, a link to is uh, a process that they refer to as the bid process, the um, uh, BID, which is, uh, now I've, I've lost my, uh, the, uh, um, now all these, yeah, whatever. yeah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> basically the process is that you want to meet with the person initially. Okay. And really uh, establish what the uh, the, the context is going to be of the discussion. You want to talk about any potential sensitivities. You right, want to talk right. about the vocabulary that you may use uh, with uh, the interpreter in the, the exchange. Because sometimes with interpreters, this is where people don't always realize that because we use certain vocabulary in our discipline, it doesn't translate in other languages. Right. right? right. So you're working with an interpreter, and you might ask if uh, the child has... Um, any learning challenges, but maybe learning challenges doesn't translate very well. So then the only thing that comes close with the interpreter, if you haven't prepped with them is mental impairment. Right. Or like, yeah. Are they, yeah. Say something like retarded or, you know, and you're, but you don't have any idea any of that's happening except you look at mom's face and like she goes white and you, and then she wants to know if you think her child is retarded and you're like oh my gosh and this is why we have to oh it's bid stands for briefing interaction and debriefing right It's it's the briefing part initially where you kind of establish the context you you um you calibrate your language that you're going to use and identify right. if there are any vocabulary words that might be misconstrued or maybe they don't uh translate very well and because time is the enemy in everything that we do it's it's challenging to do, but I can tell you from personal experience that if you don't do that debriefing or that briefing part and debriefing, you may find out that the information that that person is communicating isn't as valid and reliable as you think. Right, right, exactly. And you have, and just having those conversations about, okay, no, we're not going to say retarded. We're going to talk. Right. Let's, the idea I want to get to here is talking about, you know, mental. Whatever, whatever, whatever it might it be. Whether it's this is a developmental history or part of a case history for your evaluation. I mean, the, the critical piece is like identifying what questions are essential that you need to know to uh, provide insight uh, to your evaluation. The other piece I would say, too, that we typically don't do a very good job at, I would say, I don't want to say, oh, I don't want to overgeneralize this, but <laughs> we ask a question that inherently in the westernized world, most parents may already have a contextual framework for. Mm-hmm. So with our bilingual parents, many times it may not be as clear. And in some cultures, there's a sense of 
shame that might come with asking if your child is struggling. Sure. So instead of saying something like, is your child struggling with understanding uh, Vietnamese at home? The word struggle might come like, well, the parent might think to themselves, well, I don't want to share that information. It's sensitive and it's embarrassing. Right. So then what you want to do is maybe contextualize it for the parent and say, if the child has a sibling, ask questions that are comparative. If, you know, does the child, uh, does the younger child understand more than the older child? Yeah, that's a great, you know that's I mean? a great so, tip. So, mm-hmm. so give them a, a, a contextual framework to draw from and give them examples. Because again, this could be important for not just our bilingual parents, but so some of our parents that might come from uh, backgrounds that are uh, socioeconomically diverse. Sure. Yep. You know, provide, because I can tell you that a lot of times we talk, but we don't, you know, I don't know if parents necessarily have true informed consent because we're using all of these fancy oh terms. Oh my gosh, I think about that all the time. Yeah, so all I think the time. It's relevant to I think any family providing examples. And I've been in meetings before where it's been with English speaking parents and the principals uh, acting as our district representative, and I talk about uh, you know some of the language based struggles that the child has, and then I contextualize it to what that looks like at home and in the classroom. Right. And right. I can tell you the aha that the principal has, like, oh, my gosh, I never knew that that's what that meant. Right. right. Yeah, I know. And it's it, well, it comes down to being a good communicator. Right. It all right. comes back to communication. It all does. So, yeah. Um, I appreciate that. I mean, I know you probably have to close this down, but uh, there I, I know there's so much more that people will want information on. I'll, I'll provide some links to some I what I think are some very strong resources in terms of assisting with this process. Um, and maybe you can come back and do another one. Yeah. You know, if I came back and did another one uh, or maybe more than one, I think having maybe a separate one, I think I'd like to talk more specifically about the, uh, what the second language acquisition look like. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because I think that knowing those attributes of second language acquisition, again, goes back to helping us understand what typical and atypical look like. I think having a discussion on dynamic assessment. Yes, that would, would be great. Would be helpful. And then maybe even having like a little discussion of, you know, looking at the cultural language interpretive matrix yes. uh, of Dr. Ortiz's and how that applies to speech pathology and how we can use that information to give us some insight. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's make a plan. Make a plan. Well, thank you so much, Frank. Okay. No worries. I appreciate the time. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.